Hi, good evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and I'm um, really pleased to welcome all of you here tonight. Um, I'm glad that there are some serious folks in Baltimore who are not out celebrating Mardi Gras and Fat Tuesday and are here to uh, learn <laughs> to have a conversation about some serious issues. So um, we are, the Pratt is really pleased. We've been for about five years uh, partnering with Baltimore Greenworks on this sustainable speaker series and uh, it just keeps growing and, and it's evident as, as I see all of you here tonight. And we, um, we are looking forward to having, having Karen Newman here and I don't remember the date but it's on the poster outside there in the hallway. She's our next speaker series. And I'm going to pass the mic to Christina Nutil, who is the um, who is with Baltimore Greenworks, and she's going to tell you this is their 10th anniversary. So let's give them a round of applause. And they have lots of exciting things coming up this spring, and she's going. Christina's going to tell you about them, and then um, we'll get on with the program. Christina, thank you, Judy. Um, so I just want to take a minute to thank um, the Pratt first and foremost because we have been doing this for five years together and from day one you guys have just been incredibly enthusiastic and really supportive and you just, every little detail, it's just been so easy to work with everybody here. So I just want to give them a big round of applause for having us here in their beautiful space. So my name is uh, Christina Nutil and I work for a nonprofit called Baltimore Greenworks. Baltimore Greenworks um, works tirelessly to try and recruit people that are um, leaders, nation, nationally known leaders in the community um, to come here to Baltimore and to talk, to bring a broader conversation and experiences here um, to help resolve some of the issues that we have locally. So this is what we do um, on a daily, yearly basis. Um, so we have the Sustainable Speaker Series. We also do Baltimore Green Week that's coming up. We're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary. That's April 20th through the 27th. Um, during that week, you have the opportunity to do free um, and very low-cost um, workshops on things like urban farming. You have the opportunity to go out and do canoe rides from the Middle Branch Park over to Canton Waterfront Park. Um, there are going to be things like green building tours, uh, and this is all, you know, available to you, very low cost, if not free. So that's April 20th through the 27th. Um, like Judy said, we've got the Sustainable Speaker Series coming up on March 7th. That's going to be Karen Newman, um, very funny lady. She's going to be talking about the uh, economical history of food and drink. Uh, right after that, on April 25th, we also have uh, Michael Clare coming in, and hold on, let me just read the name of his book. It's The Race for What's Left, The Global Scramble for the World's Last Resources. Um, and then last but not least, if you're interested in doing something really fun this spring and also coming out to support Baltimore Greenworks and helping us to continue doing some of the programming like tonight's uh, event, then come on out on March 22nd to the Eco Ball Gala. It's a Friday night. It's down in Fells Point at the Frederick Douglass Museum. And it, for those who have not, has anybody here been there? Let me ask that first. Oh, good, good. So you guys know that you get to come out. Um, you actually get to be a judge in a Top Chef style competition. We work with the Stratford University Culinary School and local farmers to um, donate food. And the, the teams put the um, culinary treats together, and then you get to be the judge. Um, there's dinner, there's dancing, there's drinks. It's a lot of fun. Um, tickets will be on sale tonight. You can go out into the hallway after the event and get them. Um, they're also on sale at discounted rate, by the way, uh, until Thursday. So you can go online and get those. Um, so let me just hand this mic over to Miranda Carter. She's the local organizer for Food and Water Watch. Miranda? There you are. Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming this evening. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Winona Howder, author of Foodopoly and ex executive director of Food and Water Watch. Um, just a little bit about her. Uh, she's been in the public interest field for over 30 years. Uh, most recently, she worked at Public Citizen for about 10 years, which is an organization that was founded by Ralph Nader. 
And um, since then, she founded Food and Water Watch and has built the organiz organization from scratch to be uh, over 450,000 members across the country. We have 16 offices and work to build political power to uh, stop the corporate control and abuse of our food and water resources. Um, <clears throat> some of our major victories, um, of about five years ago, we got Starbucks to stop using hormones in the milk that they use. And here in Maryland, about a year ago, we were able to pass a bill to ban arsenic use in chicken production. And the governor signed that into law and just went into effect at the beginning of the year. Um, Winona is an inspiring and wonderful uh, leader to our organization, and I'm so happy to have her speak tonight. So it's great to be here in Baltimore. You'll have to excuse me. I've been doing a lot of talking, and my voice isn't what it should be tonight. So I grew up on a farm. My parents were missionaries. And when I was about 11 years old, my dad decided, oh, it's time to get back to the farm. He had grown up during the Dust Bowl um, and before the Depression in Oklahoma and had fond memories of uh, living a rural lifestyle. So my parents didn't have a lot of money, but they did find a farm in rural Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., in what today is the middle of suburbia, but at that time was a very rural area. And my dad got this piece of land that had a mile-long driveway. We had a dump truck because the driveway was so rutted that it was impossible to uh, drive in and out with a, a regular vehicle. The old house uh, no one had lived in for two or three decades. It didn't have plumbing, and it took two years to get the electricity into this property. Um, my dad never did get around to putting the plumbing in. So I grew up uh, after this uh, as a teenager plucking chickens, uh, chopping wood, picking off um, potato bugs, and really living that rural lifestyle. And at the time, I didn't think it was a, a privilege. But now that I look back on what it was to really learn what it is to produce food, I think it was probably one of the most valuable experiences for in my life, and it certainly gave me an appreciation of what it is to farm and produce food. And I have a lot of sympathy for farmers. So as Miranda said, over the past three decades, I've been doing public interest work, most recently around food issues. And it's been really exciting to see how many people are interested in local food, the growing local food movement, how people want to know where their food is coming from. And in fact, my farm today, my husband runs it as a community-supported uh, agriculture project that feeds about 500 families in Washington, D.C. But what I've learned from working at Food and Water Watch with my colleagues and trying to tackle the big issues with our food system so that everyone can have access to safe and affordable food is that we're going to have to do more than vote with our fork. We're going to have to vote with our votes and build the political power to change our food system so that everybody can have access to food that's healthy, that's produced sustainably, and so that we can have a future that we want our children to live in. So I've been thinking about writing Foodopoly for quite a while. And what prompted me to finally sit down in 2010 and write this book is uh, an experience that I had over a weekend. I was at a conference in the Midwest, and I was also writing an article on conventional farming, on, on commodity farming, and I was interviewing a group of farmers who grew crops like corn and soybeans. And in my conversation with them, they documented what I had already read about, which is that these farmers, unless they're very, very, very large, aren't really making a living. And one farmer in particular 
told me a very sad story about his farm. He has a couple acres or a couple hundred acres. He inherited this property, third generation farmer, and he isn't able to pay his mortgage payments any longer. And so he was going to let the bank take his farm. He had ended up trying to invest in, in more property and more equipment, and it just hadn't worked out, and he'd taken a mortgage out on this property. So this same weekend, I went to this conference, and I was listening to a panel uh, that had some food experts, food policy experts, uh, speaking about organic food. And someone from the audience asked one of the speakers, why is organic food so much more expensive? And this person gave a real shortcut answer. Uh, she basically said, well, it's because of the subsidies that conventional farmers get. And she used language that made it seem like they're just kind of welfare queens. Well, I know that it's a much more complex story than that. And if we're going to really change our food system, we're going to need to make alliances with farmers because we can't transition into a sustainable food system if we don't have farmers. So I went home and I started writing the outline for Foodopoly. So I'm going to start with some statistics and farm history. And I'm going to ask you to bear with me, because when you're talking about food policy, the devil really is in the details. Now, we all hear anyone who's interested in uh, food or changing food policy, we always hear that the central problem is the subsidy system. And I like to start with a, a description of how we got this system, because I think it informs us about what we need to do to really change the dysfunctional food system and to put the blame where it deserves to be, not just on farmers. So the US Department of Agriculture does a census of agriculture about every 10 years. And in their most recent census, they say that we have 2.2 million farmers in this country. Well, they're fibbing. And you know, um, remember Mark Twain said, statistics uh, damn lies and statistics? Well, that's uh, the truth with these USDA numbers. Because when you look at how they arrive at this number, uh, it's, it's not accurate. So one-third of those 2.2 million farmers make um, $1,000 and less in sales every year. These are people like my friend down the road who grows flowers for a white tablecloth restaurant in the summertime. And she's not a farmer. She doesn't consider herself a farmer. She's a hobby grower of flowers. Or it's like my neighbor who has a vineyard. He's um, um, retired military, and he grows under $10,000 of grapes a year. He has a large retirement from the US government, and he really has a vineyard because it's a lifestyle. He enjoys having this vineyard. So the USDA says that two-thirds of these 2.2 million farmers make under $10,000 in sales, like my neighbor with the vineyard. So when you look at how many farmers really farm full-time and make their living from farming and work their land, it's under a million farmers that we have left in the United States. And these small and mid-sized farmers make on average under $19,000 a year, excuse me, just over $19,000 a year. And half of that comes from a government payment. Now, there's something wrong with a system like that, where 82% of small and mid-sized farmers are dependent on a, on a government payment. So how did we end up with this system? And who really benefits? That's what I want to explore this evening. But I also want to make the case that if we just get rid of subsidies and we don't change 
the policies that make it impossible for farmers to make a living, we're going to lose even more farms and we're going to have even more concentrated agriculture. So it's really important to look at what we need to change because we're facing a, uh, uh, a Congress that may completely do away with the safety net for, um, for farmers in the coming year. So let's start with some farm policy history. The New Deal, which was um, uh, took place after the Depression, because we all know that the economic situation in the 1920s was really dire. A lot of the same misbehavior that we've recently seen uh, took place by the uh, financial services industry. And farmers were in especially bad shape because they had done pretty well in World War One because Europe wasn't producing food, but they were told to get bigger, to invest more in their land. And then after World War One, there was no market, so they had massive overproduction. And then when the economy went bad, they really didn't have a market to sell into. So in the 1933, the Roosevelt administration decided to institute some policies to prevent the overproduction of foods so that farmers could make a living and there wouldn't be this wild fluctuation of prices. And this was very successful. They instituted policies like a grain reserve, a set-aside program for land in years when it looked like there would be too many commodities grown. And they actually had a price floor for farmers so that farmers could be assured that they would get the cost of production, at least, out of their farming. So this worked pretty well during uh, World War II and into the 1940s. But after World War II, the economic climate in the US was changing. And there were uh, individuals, economic interests, that really believed that the future for the US economy was in industry and manufacturing. And these people wanted to get the rural population uh, into urban areas. So some of these individuals got together and they formed a group called the Committee for Economic Development. And this organization had uh, most of the titans of industry join it over the next 15, dec or 15 years or so. And what they wanted to do was to reduce the 6.8 million people who lived in rural areas. And uh, that was about 54% of the population. So over half of the population lived in rural areas. And they wanted young men to move to urban areas and to work in industry. And they especially wanted cheap labor. They were also very skeptical about a lot of the activism that had taken place in farming communities. Since the time uh, after the Civil War, farmers were really on the vanguard of populism. Uh, they were, their incomes were affected in the 1880s by uh, the railroads, the cost of shipping their goods. Uh, they were, they um, wanted the banks to treat them fairly. And there had been a lot of farm ac uh, activism and the farm groups, the activist groups like the National Farmers Union had joined with labor either, even and had elected candidates to office and were very politically active. And so there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm for this in the uh, Committee for Economic Development. So they began lobbying and talking amongst themselves in their uh, social clubs. And they decided to uh, write reports and begin to make the case that capital could replace labor on the farm and that vertical integration was really the future for the food system. So it took until the 1950s for them to be able to successfully begin to chip away at those New Deal policies. And under the Eisenhower administration, there was a secretary of uh, agriculture named Ezra Benson, who was an ideologue. He believed that these farm programs were going to turn the United States into a communist country. 
Uh, he was very, um, very much of a uh, a person of the 1950s during the red baiting and and so forth. And so he uh, talked the Eisenhower administration into reducing parity, which is uh, the concept of farmers being paid on par with uh, urban workers, and began to chip away at these at these policies. So this continued into the 1960s and 70s with each farm bill that's passed every five years. The protections for farmers were eliminated one by one. So in the 1970s, during the Nixon administration, Ezra Benson's protege, Earl Butts, uh, a few of you may be old enough to remember Earl Butts, he told farmers, get big or get out. And he encouraged farmers to invest large sums of money in new land and new equipment because he, his vision was that the U.S. would be a, a huge exporter of especially commodity crops. Well, what happened is one year there was a, a market for export crops, and after that, there really wasn't much of a market. And so all of these farmers that had borrowed all of this money and gone deep into debt began to lose their farms. And so the, the rural communities in the, the end of the 1970s and beginning of the 1980s were in really um, dire straits, very rough shape with hundreds of farms, thousands of farms going out of business. So then the Reagan administration came into office, and you probably all know that the Reagan administration came in on an agenda of deregulation. So one of the things that was top on the list to deregulate was the laws in this country that are, were designed to make companies compete. You know, we have an economic system that's supposed to be based on competition. And there are, or were in the past, strict antitrust laws. Well, when the Reagan administration came in and took over the Federal Trade Commission, they drastically changed our antitrust laws. And there were a number of industries that wanted to get bigger, that wanted um, competitors to be able to merge and acquire one another, including the grocery industry, the grain traders, and a large segment of the food industry. So when President Reagan came into office and appointed someone to the Federal Trade Commission, he came in, slashed the budget, laid off uh, many uh, staff, got rid of whole departments. I actually interviewed one of the commissioners who was at the F uh, Federal Trade Commission at that time who um, wrote a 400-page scathing report for Congress about what had happened. They came in and basically changed the definition for an antitrust violation, narrowing it. And in fact, that's why we have so many industries that are concentrated and consolidated today, not just the food industry, but just about every industry is uh, held by just a, a few companies who've been able to merge and acquire one another. So that meant that the food industry in the 1980s began to gain power because when you become a very large company, you have a lot of economic and political power. So at the same time, these laws um, regarding farming were also being weakened um, for the benefits for farmers. So by the 1990s, the farming community was in pretty rough shape. And this was also the era, the time that the U.S. was being encouraged to join the World Trade Organization, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and to get involved in globalized trade. So many of the economic interests involved with the food industry started lobbying to get the U.S.'s farm policy in line with the requirements for the World Trade Organization, which meant a complete deregulation and getting rid of all of the supply management programs 
that um, were the last vestiges of the New Deal. It meant getting rid of the grain reserve. It meant getting rid of the programs that allowed the government to do something if it looked like there was going to be massive overproduction or underproduction. And it got rid of uh, any of the uh, last remaining pieces of policy that made sure that farmers got paid something for production. So what happened? By 1998, uh, because this farm bill passed in 1996 under the Clinton administration, and it was very controversial at the time. So in 1998, the price of corn had dropped by 50%. The price of soy had dropped by 40%. Farmers were not getting the cost of production. Farms were going out of business. And that meant that um, there was a lot of political pressure. So in 1998, Congress, in its wisdom, rather than reestablishing some of these common sense programs that had helped stabilize farming communities, they just decided that taxpayers would uh, uh, help maintain uh, farms and so that farms wouldn't completely go out of business. And that subsidy program began in 1998 as a temporary program and was made permanent in 2002. So I've told this long story because I think it's important to know where this subsidy system came from and then to analyze, so who actually benefits from this system? Who benefits from having cheap grains and commodities? Well, it's the companies, the corporations that actually use these commodities and uh, as their raw materials. So I know I've been kind of making your eyes glaze over. I see people, some people yawning. So I think it's time for a little bit of audience participation um, as we get at this question about who really benefits from having cheap commodities. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand for a few minutes. And I'm going to just disclose, I'm going to be asking you a question. And if I were down in the audience, I would be one of the people who would shortly be sitting down. I'm going to ask uh, if any of you have ever eaten any of these foods or had any of these drinks. And if you have, when you hear the, the, the name, please sit down. Okay, Pepsi, Mountain Dew, Aquafina, Sierra Mist, Tazo, Sobe, Slice, Lipton, Propel, Gatorade, Tropicana, Naked Juice, Captain Crunch, Aunt Jemima, Near East, Rice-A-Roni, Pasta-Roni, Puffed Wheat, Harvest Crunch, Quaker Crisp, King Vitamin, Mothers, Lay's, Maui Style, Ruffers, Ruffles, Doritos, Cheetos, Rolled Gold, Sun Chips, Cracker Jacks, Chester's, Grandma's, Munchos, Smart Food, Matador, Hickory Stick, uh, Miss Vicky's, and the list goes on. Now, the, the reason that I'm naming all of those brands is that all of those brands are made by the largest food company in the country, PepsiCo. So PepsiCo is one of 20 companies that when you go into the grocery store, it looks like there is all of this um, choice and all of these different brands. But when you actually go into a grocery store, there are 20 companies that control most of those brands. So while it looks like all of those different uh, brands that I just named um, are coming from different companies, really PepsiCo, the second largest company in the world, food company, uh, is controlling that food. Nestle, the largest um, food company in the world, is the second largest in the U.S. It has something like 6,000 brands. Um, you can guess who some of these other companies are. Tyson, uh, JBS, the Brazilian company, Kraft, General Mills, you know most of these companies' names. These are some of the companies that benefit 
and lobbied for these changes in farm policy because they wanted access to cheap ingredients and they wanted access to foods produced around the world because outsourcing food production makes it cheaper. So when we hear that it's the farmers who are really benefiting from the subsidy system, we have to think again. Maybe some of these farmers, small and mid-size, who are um, staying in business are benefiting somewhat, but it's really these, these food processing companies that have benefited from these uh, cheap ingredients. So let's, let's look at a box of cornflakes, what a farmer makes. So in a, a large box of cornflakes, the farmer makes three to five cents. In a, a bag of chips, the, the farmer makes two or three cents. And in that soda, uh, the farmer makes between one and two cents. So in the first seven years after farm policy was deregulated in 1996 and the price of corn and soy went down so low, guess who saved money? The soda industry saved about a billion dollars, but it's not just the soda industry, it's the meat industry. When this deregulation took place, it completely changed the complexion of how our meat is produced. Uh, we already saw factory-style farming coming into play in the uh, in the late 18 or 1980s and the 1990s, but it wasn't until the price of feed went very, very low that we saw the explosion of factory farms, um, especially in hog and um, for cattle. Poultry, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, is a little bit of a different situation. But let's look at hog farms. So in 1998, which was two years after the deregulation took place, only 30% of hogs were grown on contract in these giant factory farms um, that are run by companies like Smithfield. Once farmers didn't have to, or farming operations didn't have to grow their own feed anymore, it made the proliferation of these factory farms possible. So we went from 30% of hogs being grown on factory farms in 1998 to 95% being grown on factory farms in 2005. Let's look a little bit at the poultry industry because the poultry industry has also benefited from this kind of deregulation and the ability to get so large uh, because our antitrust laws have been eviscerated. And I think it's especially important because the poultry industry operates here in Maryland on the eastern shore. And what most people don't know is that it's not just the birds that are being abused in those giant warehouses where you have 300, 400,000 birds smushed together in a, uh, a warehouse with less than a foot to turn around. Those contract growers are making, on average, less than $15,000 a year for um, their contract operation. So who really benefits from that? That is companies like Purdue, uh, Tyson, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, which is owned by JBS, the big Brazilian meat company. And so I think most people here in Maryland don't realize that agriculture only provides about one, little less than 1% of the uh, gross domestic project of, of um, product of Maryland. And most people think that uh, agriculture plays a, a very large part, but in reality, uh, these factory farms are not really benefiting the economics of the state. They're not benefiting the Chesapeake Bay, that's for sure. And one of the ways that we really need to um, hold these firms accountable is to make them responsible for their waste. And that has uh, been very difficult to, to, uh, uh, to win here in Maryland, as, as most of you know. But these poultry operations, really the, the company controls almost everything about how the chicken is produced. They own the genetics. They own the chicks. They actually take the chicks 
to the contract grower's facility. The contract grower has to go into debt and build the big warehouse. And they're usually told that they're going to make a good living after they pay off the debt for this warehouse. The U.S. Department of Agriculture often actually guarantees these loans because the, uh, these contract growers uh, wouldn't have the, uh, uh, the resources to get these large loans for the warehouses. A company like Purdue or Tyson makes the feed mix, owns the feed, owns the antibiotics, and... Uh, other chemicals like uh, arsenic, which fortunately is now not used in Maryland, uh, because they put together the, uh, the feed mix and deliver it to these contract growers. They take the birds after the uh, five weeks that it takes to, to grow a broiler and then slaughter them in their processing facilities. So the, I think that part of what we need is some justice for these contract growers as well, and we have a food system that um, really is on the backs of uh, of the workers, um, like the contract growers or the other immigrants who are uh, doing the uh, the work and slaughter facilities or on, in the fields of California. So this kind of consolidation is rampant throughout our food system, but probably the very top of the food chain, the companies that have the, the most economic and political power are the retailers. And so we have four retail companies that really control the food system, uh, beginning with Walmart. Walmart, one out of three grocery dollars goes to Walmart today. And in fact, the Walmart heirs have as much wealth as the 40 bottom, 40 uh, lowest um, um, percentage of Americans um, do. I mean, that's how much wealth these um, heirs have been able to accumulate from Walmart. So there are four large retail out or chains that really um, control the food system because they need so much volume to uh, operate that we've seen consolidation all the way down the, the food chain. It's also rampant in the fruit and vegetable industry. I spent some time out in California in the Central Valley studying how produce comes to market. And what's happened, especially since the, the, the trade rules of the 1990s, is only the very largest companies, the largest packers and shippers, are able to stay in business and they all need to have an international operation. So even though we know that um, the industry that grows fruits and vegetables has always been very large farms in places like California, uh, today they've become very, very large because they have to have an international operation and because so many of these um, mid-sized farms have gone out of business. So when you're a company like Walmart, you have uh, not just a lot of market share and economic power from the market share, but the way that they actually do business and require their suppliers to do business with them sucks all of the profit out of the food system. And what's really interesting is even those 20 big processors that I spoke of uh, earlier, the companies like Pepsi and Nestle and, and Kraft or Tyson, they have to uh, obey Walmart. When Walmart speaks, because it's such a large percentage of their business, they have to do what they're asked to do. So a company like Walmart has an enormous amount of power in the food system. Anyone who supplies for them, uh, like uh, uh, the meat packers, uh, they buy about a billion pounds of beef every year. Uh, these suppliers have to use their IT system. They have to use automated systems to figure out when their inventory is getting low all of the way that they operate is designed for Walmart to be profitable and to take that money out of the pockets of their suppliers. And in fact, their suppliers are expected to uh, continue lowering the price of their goods. So this has had a, uh, a very chilling effect on agriculture.
And unfortunately, the same model exists in the organics industry today because the 20 largest food processors, uh, 14 of those also control the organics industry. So all of those packaged goods that you see when you uh, walk into a grocery store, um, most of them are owned by, by these large companies that have both conventional and organic products. So we are uh, in trouble. Our food system is in trouble. And I wrote Foodopoly, and I tell this story not because I want to discourage people, but because I think that it's really important as we begin to do our food work, our local work, and think about the policies that need to be changed, we really need to add to our agenda these deeper but very important issues. We need this powerful food movement that's growing across the country to add issues like antitrust to the agenda. Because if we're ever going to have any real justice in our food system, or if we're going to be able to reclaim our democracy, we need to do something about uh, companies that are too big to fail. And we have a lot of opportunities that we can begin to introduce these issues into our work. Because a lot of um, how we have to build the political power to change these things does begin at the community level and then uh, goes up into the state and eventually into federal policy. So if we don't speak about these issues and uh, have a good diagnosis for what's wrong, then it's going to be difficult to ever change these things. So I think there are exciting things going on uh, across the country that are um, going to be able to begin to give us a handle in uh, some of these more difficult issues. I didn't say anything about uh, seeds and the control of seeds by a few companies like Monsanto, but there is an effort that's going on now in 30 states, even here in Maryland, to label genetically engineered foods. And that's uh, one way that people can get involved in these important food issues, because I think that almost everyone believes that they have a right to know what they're eating. And we know all of the polling by news outlets like CBS uh, show that 95% of people, even if they support biotechnology, believe that they have a right to know what, what's in their food. And so I think th this is how we can begin to educate and um, get people involved. And here in Maryland, we were very excited after the three-year campaign to be able to get arsenic out of chicken feed, which is just one step in beginning to try to hold the poultry industry responsible. This year, we're going to see the uh, farm bill debated again. And as I said earlier, the farm bill is really the largest piece of legislation that governs how our food is grown. In fact, we really shouldn't call it a farm bill with under a million farmers left. We really should call it a food bill because it is responsible for feeding the more than 300 million Americans that eat in this country. And this very large piece of legislation really does determine the rules which govern how our food is produced. Now, the Farm Bill, as many of you know, um, should have passed in last year's Congress. And it was debated during the entire Congress. But it got caught up in all of the, the dysfunction. And a temporary bill was passed um, as part of the fiscal cliff legislation. So that Farm Bill is going to be debated again this year. And it's a good opportunity to talk not just about all of the uh, wonderful transition programs into organics and getting young farmers into farming, programs that were in the 2008 Farm Bill and were stripped in this temporary bill. But it's also an opportunity to start demanding a competition title in the Farm Bill. Because after all, we have an economic system that's supposed to be built on competition. But all of our public policies are geared at letting 
companies uh, consolidate. So it's time to uh, to do something about that. And even if we can't accomplish it this time, we can begin to do the education and all of the work necessary because we do have to build political power to change the food system. And as important as that, I think most people would agree to reclaim our democracy because we need people to be involved and to actually um, play a role in determining public policy. So I would invite any of you who are interested in getting involved with Food and Water Watch. We are working in Maryland on fracking right now. Um, fracking is kind of the flip side of bad agriculture policy because when, when farmers can't make a living, uh, it becomes more uh, attractive for the, um, the resource, um, the companies that are uh, drilling and doing resource extraction to move in. And we'd like to see our rural areas produce food, not uh, petroleum products. So we have um, materials out front. We, are, we also have a national genetic engineering labeling campaign. Uh, right now, we're in a, uh, um, the last few days of trying to get the FDA not to allow genetically engineered salmon to be legalized. And we have just a few more days to uh, comment on that. We have a lot of materials about why it's a problem. And uh, we, we um, have a place that you can go on our website and actually make a comment. We also have cards out front uh, about labeling that we would love for people to sign up on, along with our petition on fracking. So I think we can have questions and a discussion. I know there are many people here tonight who have um, a great deal of knowledge about food policy and uh, love to hear your comments and questions. Hi, Winona. Thank you so much for all the great work that you do. I love Food and Water Watch so much. Um, uh, I, I am very interested just and from your perspective, if you could talk a little bit more about um, the organic industry that has not that uh, does not want genetically a uh, genetic food genetically modified food labeled and why they're going in that direction I um, suddenly learning about all these brands that I shouldn't be buying anymore and so on and it's it's been very disheartening to see that going on I was just wondering if you want to make some comments about that well sure well because a lot of the organics brands that you see in the grocery store are controlled by the food processors who also mostly do business with conventional brands. They're, they have funded um, campaigns to stop the labeling of genetically engineered food. Most recently in California, there was initiative, a very hard-fought initiative, and the industry outspent the uh, groups working on it 10 to 1. And, you know, I think what has happened is these companies have taken the idea of organics, which I know 25, 30 years ago, um, when people first started talking about organic food, it was conceived of as something that would be grown locally. There'd be a lot of local control. It was not viewed as a niche market. But these large companies view organic food as a niche market that they can make a premium on. So the, the price of organic food, in fact, the answer to that question about why organic food is more expensive, yes, it costs more, more labor for some organic foods to be produced, but a lot of why organic food is more expensive in the grocery store today or at Whole Foods is the model of the industry. So you have a company like Whole Foods that dominates uh, the national uh, retail chains it's um, now absorbed its uh, largest competitor, Wild Oats Market, and it has really a stranglehold on the national market. And it's become much more profitable. Whole Foods, in the uh, last five years, their sales since they since the the last set of mergers have um, doubled, and their profits have uh, quadrupled in the last uh, five years. 
And what most people also don't realize is that there is one distributor in the country that distributes natural and organic foods to grocery stores, and they have a deal with um, with Whole Foods, and that's United Natural Fresh Inc., UNFI for short. And UNFI has gone public in the last five years, and their sales have increased by 88%, and their profit margin, uh, 83%. And I've talked to a lot of people in the organics industry, like small restaurant owners and stores that are trying to be independent and compete with Whole Foods. And the price is skyrocketing of these organic goods. And in fact, the buying clubs and most of the co-ops across the country, this isn't true everywhere, but in, in many places, they aren't able to get uh, UNFI to distribute to them any longer. So I, I, this is why this issue of consolidation and antitrust is so important and why we need to begin recognizing and demanding that something be done about it. Yeah. Hello. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to be able to afford a certain amount of organic and fresh food, uh, but I think I've read that the price of food basically or amount that a typical family spends on food is about 7% of their earnings. So at this, one could say that's a tremendous accomplishment from the type of farm situation you described in the past where people would pay 25 to 30%. So why wouldn't one suspect that what we're mostly talking about isn't a very elite type movement? Why is this good for the common person on the street? Well, I'm going to quibble with your numbers because I know where they come from. Um, the USDA says that the... Uh, um, the um, average income for Americans is, um, or the average percentage of income spent on food by the average American is 9% counting restaurants. 7% is if you eat at home. That's where the numbers have come from. Now, we need to look at what they count as disposable income. First of all, they take everybody's income in the U.S., including the 1%. They count all pension benefits as disposable income. They count all um, health care benefits as dis uh, disposable income. They count food stamps uh, in this mix and women, infant, and uh, children programs. And they add that all together, and then they say that it's 9%. Now, what really matters, I think, is... Wow, because we have such a stratified society, how much of income do people on the lower end of the income spend spectrum spend on groceries? And if you take the Bureau of Labor Statistics, what they say is that the bottom 40% of Americans spend more than 36% of their income on food. So again, you know, it's how you look at these statistics. And we've been looking very carefully at this because we keep hearing that food is cheap. But over the last decade, food prices have increased 3% every year. And I think anybody who goes to the grocery store knows, you know, groceries are going, are going up in cost. Now, yes, there are cheap foods that you can buy. You know, you can get a burger for a dollar. But if you're talking about feeding your family decent, high-quality fruits, vegetables, uh, especially organic foods, you're talking about a lot higher than uh, 7 or 9%. Hi. Uh, I don't buy that much from Whole Foods, but I do occasionally like to go in there and get some sausages. <laughs> Weakness. So I guess one of the questions is, uh, I, I live here in Baltimore. Any recommendations in terms of buying locally? If anyone else knows something, let me know. And I guess secondly, uh, a neighbor of mine gets the Motley Fool Advisory Service, and uh, Whole Foods has been one of the stocks they're very high on. Yeah. Partly because of, I think, things you're just saying right now. I always wonder, what about inside activism, buying shares of it and going to the uh, meetings and uh, trying to advocate there? Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, you know, I, I personally believe that it's going to take political action to change the rules to do something about uh, these companies. And, um, you know, as far as what to eat, I mean... 
most of us have to go and shop in these stores because there isn't a lot of choice. I mean, in the summer and in many parts of the country, there are people producing local food, their farmers markets and CSAs and, and so forth. I mean, I think the best rule is don't eat processed food. 90% of the American income, or the American food budget, rather, is spent on processed food. 90%. I mean, that's from government statistics. And so the best way to protect yourself is to, uh, uh, to cook and not eat processed food and eat as many fruits and vegetables as you can. Um, and to become a political activist, because that's what it's going to really take if we're going to have a world that's decent for our children to live in. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here today. My question is in reference to um, the farm. You know, farmers are losing their land. And it's my understanding that corporations are buying the land. So what impact would that have on us, on our food process? And also with the Farm Bill coming up, are there things that we need to consider to address this so that this doesn't become further monopoly in the future? Well, this is a growing problem. It's both causing the price of land to skyrocket, especially in rural areas. So here in the U.S., companies are buying land and in the western part of the U.S. buying water rights. And so this is going to have a uh, very bad effect on agriculture. I'm not sure that the Farm Bill is the place that this can be dealt with, but we surely should have uh, an investigation by Congress, which has um, several uh, organizations have recommended because um, there are many concerns about what's going to happen in the future, especially uh, around water rights um, with the uh, um, water becoming um, uh, much more um, valuable because it's, um, it's under so many threats. Now, globally, we know that it's not just companies, but countries are buying land in the developing world in places like uh, Latin America and, and Africa. Um, countries like China are actually investing in the land for the future. So it, it is something to be concerned about. Hi. <laughs> um, so my question is, uh, sort of based on an experience I had the other morning when I had left the morning radio on by accident to mix 107.3, I think it was, and the radio commenter was telling a story which I thought was going somewhere really cool and saying, gosh, you know, I heard that the dollar menu at McDonald's is going to be raised up to $1.20. And have you ever wondered why everything on the dollar menu only costs a dollar? Um, and I was like, whoa, this sounds awesome. And then uh, it didn't at all go in the direction that most of us in the audience might have liked it to go. Um, and he talked about how you know grain prices were rising, so that was why it was going to have to be $1.20. It almost sounded like McDonald's was paying whatever corporate media station to like prepare us all for the $1.20 menu so people wouldn't freak out about it later, um, <laughs> if you want to be of that mindset. And I'm wondering, you know, I wanted to like write to the radio station. When you have somebody who is making that argument that um, the dollar menu is really good for people because it allows them to buy a lot of high calorie cheap food that includes protein. It's not just snack food. Um, so it's good for people and they don't have the framework that I think most of this in, us in this room have. So we're prepared to hear sort of the longer statements you made. What's your like, you know, one minute elevator speech response to kind of key people in? Well, I will say grain prices are going up. Uh, because of the drought and uh, um, and also because of ethanol, but the price that farmers um, are actually or the cost of farming is going up too, so farmers aren't getting the benefits from those higher grain prices. As far as McDonald's, I mean, I think I would say we should be. Uh, um, regulating advertising, because if we really want to address why people are going to eat junk food, 
it's because of all of the advertising. The average child sees about 5,000 junk food, junk food ads a day. So, you know, I think you have to go to the source of the problem. And also we have to do something about the situation in our country where we have growing stratification. The food system isn't going to solve poverty. What, we, what will solve poverty is dealing with all of the issues that are making it impossible for many, many people in this country to make a, a decent living. And because of the growing stratification that we see as, as uh, even middle class citizens are uh, losing their ability to uh, uh, make ends meet. Uh, it's a different subject, but I, I do think it's an important subject when we're looking at our food system. We don't need to make food cheaper. We need to make Americans have a higher income or Americans who don't have a high income. Okay, I think we're going to do one more question. Okay. Well, I completely agree with everything you're saying, but I wonder if it's already too late that the world is transitioning into a different system and uh, a brave new world, the brave new world concept of corpocracy that uh, maybe 95% of the people you were talking about that should be educated uh, want their processed foods. It's never too late. It's never too late. I mean, let's just look at our history in this country. Look at the history of organizing for social change. I mean, it took 50 years to organize, to do away with child labor. I mean, what we need to do is to reform and to strengthen our democracy. I mean, I think that's central to these issues. We need people to become citizens, not just consumers. And that's why I think it's so important that we do more than um, vote with our fork. We need to get involved politically as well. There's a movement in Maryland and other states to get money out of politics. And the Maryland website is get money out. And uh, Merrill, get my G and G mom. Well, that's a very easy yeah. way for people to get involved in the issue of overturning the citizens uh, United States. And that's going on across the country. I mean, that really gives me hope. Thank you for raising that. And thank you, um, Winona Hodder. Let's everybody give her a big round of applause.